0: was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets.
1: So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work.
2: I feel like we got top, top, top.
0: I went from a sale of, you know, $500,000 to in debt.
2: $192 million. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. So once a year, you go to the doctor, right? They take your blood pressure. Maybe they prick your finger and they take a little blood and they give you a sense of your cholesterol level. Maybe if you go to one of those fancy healthcare facilities, they get you to run on a treadmill for a while, see how your heart's doing. You get a checkup. The same thing should be true of your business. When we look at your business through the Value Builder score, we're going to look at it through eight key drivers that acquirers care about. Whether you want to sell your business immediately or in 10, 20 years from now, these are the eight factors that business buyers care about. Knowing them now will help you maximize the value of your business going forward. Just go to valuebuilder.com and take the questionnaire. So if you ever wondered how to maintain your negotiating leverage when you sign a letter of intent, letters of intent usually have what's called a no shop clause, meaning you have to give up negotiations with anybody else and sort of fall into the arms of a potential acquirer. It's at that point where you can often get ground down and retrading because the acquirer knows you don't have a lot of leverage left because you've said goodbye to all the other potential suitors. Well, my next guest, Mike and Ganesh from OPEX found themselves in that situation, but I think did a tremendous job of maintaining leverage, which they'll explain how they did it in this episode. Lots of good stuff in OPEX's, acquisition by Llamasoft. Uh, in particular, there's some interesting information about how they hired really tough to find employees. They were in the AI or artificial intelligence space. So they'll talk about how they use, how they found highly sought after employees, how they bootstrapped themselves to 140 employees without ever raising money. Um, why service companies often struggle to become product companies and why the inverse is not always true. And why, in Ganesh's case, he refers to due diligence as equivalent to giving birth. Here to tell you the gory details are Ganesh and Mike from OpEx Analytics. Enjoy. Mike and Ganesh, welcome to Built to Sell Radio.
1: Well, thanks for having us. John, yeah.
2: thank you. It's, how did you two crazy characters get together? Like, give me the backstory <laughs> on how OpEx came to be. Vinay, yeah. hey, why don't you tell us?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. John, before we get there, I want to say a big thank you to you and your show, because, you know, we've been big fans of your show, and we always dreamt of being on the show while we were going through the digital processing. <laughs> hey, how would oh, we great. respond to these questions? Hopefully we'll get there one day, and if we get there, how will we answer these questions? So, <laughs> uh, thank you very much for, for what uh, you're doing here. That was
2: very generous, guys. I really appreciate that. I'm glad you guys found some value. So how did you guys get to know one another? Uh,
0: absolutely, so, so you know, we go back a long way, Mike and I. So I was a you know, junior uh, consultant in, in one of the you know, software companies uh, I joined. That was my second job out of uh, school, and Mike was one of the top guys in that company. That is back in 2007. Right, so you know that company got acquired a couple of times. Uh, went to a company called iLog, and then iLog got acquired by IBM, and we worked together through that whole process. Um, so the founding story goes back to 2012, right? And I was deployed in in Asia Pacific, and you know I was in Manila, and Mike was visiting me from US, and you know we were in a traffic jam and traveling from one place to another. Anybody who's been to Manila. Can tell you that it's you know it's a city of traffic jams so we had a lot of time together in these traffic uh, jams <laughs> and you know and I'd say you know I kind of proposed to Mike saying hey would you ever consider working with me on a business idea and he said yes and as they say the rest is history right so. Uh, Mike, you want to add to that and what what, the company well, what was, was the, the idea,
2: Mike? Like, what, what were you guys setting out to do? Like, what, what was the original genesis behind OpEx and what was the idea?
1: Yeah, so the big idea was we were going to take what we knew about supply chain optimization and combine it with this new field that was emerging called machine learning. So that was like okay. a big buzzword so at the time. Dumb
2: down that for me. So supply, would you call it supply chain? Supply chain <laughs> modeling,
1: supply chain optimization. It's, it's okay. basically so figuring out. Is- Yes, yeah, yeah. go ahead, figure it out what? It's figuring out how do you get, you, you make orange juice, how do you get your orange juice from your factories to the warehouse, to the shelf so that you can buy it. And that's- but What's uh, the customer pay point? Like, don't I just put it on a truck and the truck
2: shows up at the grocery store and Bob's your uncle? Like, what, yeah, you, why, you why
1: can, is you would think about that, but it's, you have to figure out, you know, which truck do you put it on? How do you route that truck? Um, how, where do you send that truck to? Because it usually goes to a distribution point first. Where should those points be? Which factory should I even make the product in? So all those, all those little decisions that add up to how do you do this efficiently.
2: And so you've got your, the company was designed to be a consulting company that would help uh, orange juice manufacturer to get their product the most efficiently to a grocery store. Was it consulting or was it software or a combination of the two?
1: Yeah, so it, we start, it's kind of a combination of the two, but to make it easy for our customers, we kind of presented ourselves as consulting. We said, we'll come in, we have some people, we'll solve some particular problems, and what we'll leave behind is we'll leave behind a piece of software that helps you do this stuff more efficiently. And it may even help you predict what the demand's going to be so you can better schedule your workforce and things like that.
2: Got it. Okay. So I get it. I think conceptually. So take, take it me further. Did you win some clients? Like would I know any of the names
1: of customers that you want? Oh, you'd know the name. So we work with basically, you know, fortune 500 companies. We have a video up on our website from a, a bottler of Coca-Cola that talked, that gave a testimonial about working with us. So we, you know, the way we started is totally bootstrapped it. And Ganesh and I just went out and started selling our services and, and, Once we got some traction, we started hiring some folks. I'm also an adjunct professor at Northwestern, and so we had some connections to some programs there, and we started hiring some great people, and it just seemed like the more people we hired, the more blue-chip clients that we got, and the happier my clients were.
2: I've always wondered what an adjunct professor is. It sounds like like an appendage. Like You're not really a professor. You've got sort
1: of like an arm, lop. (laughs) What is an adjunct professor? What do you mean? You said it exactly right. If, if they could pay you under the table, they would pay me under the Oh, got like, it. They would do that. So I show up, I teach my class, the students are happy. And if the students are happy, the program's happy. But other than that, I have no other connection with Northwestern. I just show okay. up, teach, and do my thing.
0: John, so another way to think about it is uh, an adjunct professor is somebody who is, uh, who is just as smart as the other professors, but also lives in the real world. Uh, okay,
2: got oh. it. Got it. Actually has oh. some experience. <laughs> I'm looking forward to getting the 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 social media blast about putting down. Okay, so let's get into it. So, Ganesh, take me through. Take me through. I mean, we don't have time for the whole story, but from a taxi cab in Manila, you come up with this idea. Eventually, you got to 140 employees. Right. Like. Fill in the blanks for me is is there a, was there an inflection point where things started to really grow beyond just you and
0: Mike Oh for sure right I think uh, you know we, we we got a project or two right as we were talking to customers and we we got to a point where we could hire four or five people right and you know i can't name this customer, but we we got a chance to kind of co innovate with one of the largest uh, you know fashion companies in the world right okay. and there we kind of discovered our business model. If you will, we nailed what we are all about working with that customer for about six to 12 months. Right? Uh, and they gave us a lot of business. And you know, we grew to a you know significant seven-figure business just working with them. And we had other customers too, but we kind of nailed our business model working with them. And then we knew we went to market with that message saying, hey, we're the co-innovation partners. AI is hard. AI for supply chain is a very specialized area and we are specialists at this and we're going to, you know, we're going to land with you and we're going to build software for answering a whole range of questions for you. And that started clicking with the market. So, Got it. You know, so, the, so
2: the fashion company that you worked with, you were kind of, as in your own words, kind of co-innovating. Right. Were you specific with them about who owned the IP? In that
0: case, they own the IP. The kind of stuff that we did for them, they own the IP and we didn't it, care. Was uh, that
2: part of your scope of work and part of your contract? It was stated clearly right. that they own the IP. So how did you go from them owning the IP to use, reusing the IP? You
0: know what yeah, I mean? we, we didn't have to reuse that IP. So when, when you go from a fashion company to a, a CPG company, from a CPG company to a transportation company, the problem statement changes it's a different set of IP that you create, right? So, so we, we, were, we were getting good at that stuff. As we were getting good at that stuff, we also realized that, hey, there are unique blocks that all these customers need and no one has commissioned us to work on that piece, right? For example, we have a platform for deploying apps. Nobody commissioned us for building that. We, by that time, when we were up to about 15 to 20 people, we had enough funds in the company to say, hey, we're gonna start a software unit inside the business that's gonna build software that we think all, other, all customers would need, right? So, so about the 20 people mark, we kind of had two parts of our business. One, where we are co-innovating with customers. As Mike said, that's the service angle. On the back end, we're creating IP that's independent of the work that we are doing with customers.
2: And Mike, how are you guys financing this growth? when you went from project-based consulting, if you will, and a few handful of bodies to building a piece of software that you could reuse, did that require outside investment or how did you guys finance that
1: so we, fund, we financed everything uh, with cash flow from our, our project. So the whole thing was 100% bootstrapped. And as we started building some of the product, we did it probably slower than we would have if we would have brought in capital. But I think we made a decision that we were going to just build the business based on the revenue and, and basically based on the profits that we were making.
2: And, and, and so time. did you guys take a haircut on your market rate salaries during this time. Ganesh is laughing. I mean, like, can you think about like what you would have commanded in the marketplace as an AI specialist? Uh, were, you, were you paying yourself 100% of that salary, 50%, 200%? Like, give me a sense. Yeah, I was thinking what salary comes. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> it's what you you live on. Come on. Were you not paying yourself anything? No.
1: So the first couple of years we didn't pay ourselves anything or very little and then uh you know towards the end we we did we did take home a salary but I don't think it was uh was the market market salary.
2: Would it have been 50% of what you were worth in the market?
1: Yeah, probably 50% of what we would have
2: somewhere around there. So you're you're investing personally in this business all along the way. So um, yeah, so it really is it, you're all in. Uh, yeah, it's not and outside money.
0: You know what will help. You know the listener understand is you know we came from a product company background, right? So this idea of doing services co-innovation on the front and doing software on the back end, you know, they usually say this idea is not a great idea. But you know the thing is, the co-innovation was a new thing that we were doing. Services was a new thing, and we were finding traction. Market was accepting that. But in the back end, the software side, it came from that DNA. We were software people who were doing. This new business model, right?
2: Right. So when you say it's not usual, most software, or sorry, most services companies dream of having a software product. Right. That never works. But the other way around, adding so- service onto a software DNA, that, that usually has got better traction or better
0: life We would that in retrospect, uh, that, that's why it worked out for
2: us. Ganesh, why is, like, what, what is it about having a product DNA first and adding services as a layer that you think gave you an upper hand?
0: Because you know, product is, I mean, at least in retrospect, my personal experience is that software is really much harder than services, right? Uh, to scale and to build. Okay, here's another way to think about it, right? Uh, it takes many iterations to build the right software, right? And the more experience you have, the stronger your DNA component in that, the fewer iterations it takes. So you, you, we didn't have the funding to fail three times and get it right the fourth time, right? We had the funding, to try once and get it right the first time. And the DNA kind of helps us to go in with the confidence that what we're building is what the customer needs and what the market needs. And having the services front end, you get the validation very quickly because our people, our data scientists were consuming our software. And you know, we had a huge base by that time, 50, 60, 80 uh, users Delhi were consuming our software and we get that validation. So, so the product enhancement did not require a paying customer for the software. Our folks are validating that what we're building was the right thing.
2: So you're reading your own dog food as that old expression. Yeah. Mark.
0: Yeah.
2: The 140 people, Mike, that were, uh, like, give me a sense of how they broke out. Are most of them software developers? Are they you know, consultants? Like, I know they're, I'm know sure you had all those, but like, where is the like, – there's a lot of people.
1: Yeah, so we had we had of the 140, we probably had 30 to 40 people were developers, and we did our development in India. So we actually grew a development team in India, which also Mm. allowed us to self fund too. So that was another uh, trick that we used to say let's let's build a team. We found a leader over there who we could really trust, and he helped grow that team, and so that let us do that from a cash flow point of view. And then probably the the remainder of the people, you know, we had a handful of people doing sort of marketing and admin kind of stuff and keeping things going, but the vast majority were hot data scientist consultants. You know, it was like uh, that, that commodity of folks that were doing, you know, the, the, that trendy field doing data science. And
2: how did, Ganesh, how did you guys go about recruiting? Because data scientists, I mean, like the only people I can think of that would be harder to recruit for would be AI specialists. And you're like, you're like matching them together. <laughs> like we want data scientists who can do AI. Like
0: that's yeah. got to be the hard. I mean, everybody wants those people. How did you find them? Correct. I I think, uh, you know, we got very, very lucky there because, you know, I think when you hire a data scientist, I mean, that could be a podcast by itself, but, you know, we understood what they were looking for. They were looking for good work, right? Um, Good culture and good coaching. I think those are the three things they were looking for. And, you know, good coaching is something we could solve easily because, you know, Mike's professorial background and the original seeding of the company was with the kind of people that they would all want to work with, right? Uh, uh, good work is because we were working with multiple companies in different industries. Uh, you know, there was always a platform for, and, and the terminology we were using, even with our clients, was co innovation. This is not run of the mill consulting work, right? So the diversity of work existed and the depth of work existed. And finally, uh, you know, the culture is something we had to work very hard on. and know we went very first principles on that like you know it's like you know everything that we had to do we were like what's the right way to do it instead of coming up with the bias of background saying here's how things should be done we were we were lucky enough to to recognize that this is a new kind of business right it's like and what will work here has to be thought through instead of saying hey here's how i did things in this big software company or this big consulting company because it's neither of those. So we were able to be first principles on a lot of the cultural stuff. Mm. What triggered do you want to sell this company?
1: So, you know, we, we, were, uh, we weren't actively searching to sell it. We were approached by the buyer who was Llamasoft. Um, and at the time, you know, we've grown to 140 people we had ambitions to be take more of what we've done and turn it into software. And basically, at this point in, in our history, like the only thing backing us up financially was like the mortgage on our two houses. Like that was it. And it, it, you know, we were sort of past that point where our mortgages would have even made a dent in things if uh, if things had took taken a dip. And so it was it was sort of the right time. Like you know, the the business was going well. Um, you know, the cash flow was good. The the projects were good. Like things were things were fine. But it was just knowing in the background that. Hey, we, had, we were approached by this company, LamaSoft. We knew them from before. You know, Ganesh told the story of the cab in Manila. At that time, we were competing with LamaSoft, so we kind of knew them there. And then as, as OpEx Analytics, we didn't compete with them, but we'd you know we'd run into them on a, occasion on different accounts. So we knew them, knew their culture, and we felt like it was a great fit and they were gonna be a big platform for us to sort of take up, uh, take our group to the next level too.
2: What was the strategic, connection get actually, like what is, I don't know LamaSoft, I don't know their product. So like, what is it that, that they saw in you and what did you see in them?
0: Yeah, so, so a little bit about LamaSoft, right? I mean, when you think about, you know, Mike talked about solving supply chain problems, right? So there's a specific area in supply chain problem solving called supply chain design, right? This is how you structure your supply chain so that it can run efficiently, you know? So, so they built the software for that kind of work. So they had, you know, pretty much every Fortune 500 company that has a supply chain, not the insurance companies, but that has a supply chain, you know, LamaSoft is a vendor to them in supply chain design, right? So, Got it. it.
2: And so, so it sounds like they were a competitor, like a competitor of yours.
0: Uh, so, so I can understand why you're saying that, but, but so they were in the standard software for supply chain design. And what we uh, worked on was, how do you bring this new space of AI to solve all kinds of other problems in the supply chain. So it's it's puzzle solving when you think about it, right? But puzzle solving as a structured problem, the original design of a supply chain, but we came in with co-innovation. So, so what, kind, what kind of
2: problem would OpEx solve yeah. that Llamasoft out of the box software would not have solved? Can you give me like a real life example? Yeah, Let's go yeah. back to the orange juice guy with the the yeah, orange so juice plant. The orange
1: juice guy. So the orange juice guy has to figure out where should they make the product. How, uh, which warehouses should they use? That's what Lumsdorf was traditionally doing that. And then what we would come in is help them predict which truckers aren't going to show up today, or what's the price you're going to pay for a, a truck tomorrow. And so it was we were playing in the white space, the space that they weren't playing in. I think that was the fit. So we were like right next to them, and but solving different problems. So it was a That's nice, uh, nice compliment.
2: That's that makes sense. I want to go back to something you said earlier, um, Mike, I think it was you said your the only thing backing you guys up was your mortgage.
1: Sure.
2: So and 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 had things gone south, even the mortgage probably wouldn't so what I'm interpreting you to say is okay, so 140 people, I'm imagining that um, those are not inexpensive people. Perfect. So your payroll is millions of dollars a month i think Absolutely. certainly million if not multiple millions of dollars a month so that's a big nut and you both got homes had you literally like are you just joking to say that you had mortgaged them or you literally had uh, a, a mortgage? your bank line was guaranteed by your homes
1: no so it's more it's more of a joke so we never had to tap into it but uh you know we we had a tiny line of credit at the at the bank but we we literally had nothing no financial backing if things had gone south like we you know okay well we would have had and, to tap and, into my mortgage to sort of put a, more, a bigger mortgage on the house then use that money to keep the business going we never got and, to that but it was that it was that level of we had cash okay. in the bank but it was uh, that was it
2: and what what did you did you have any sense of what you thought the company was worth i am guessing you guys had those conversations between you um, did you have uh, if you don't, if you can't share the number, I, I'm, you know, I, I, that's okay. I, right. I'd be curious to know uh, sort of how you arrived at the number. Like, did you think it was a multiple of revenue or EBITDA? Like, how did you think about valuation? So,
1: yes, yeah, so we, yeah, so we sort of thought about it. You know, we were partially consulting and we knew that that had one set of uh, figures and then we were partially software. And we, were, we kind of felt like our valuation would sort of fit in with, uh, with those numbers. And then to be honest, you know, we weren't. We weren't. Uh, we talked about what we thought the value was, and, we, and the AI companies were kind of a hot space um, in 2019 for sure, and probably even even now. So we were. We sort of had some sense of what we thought the company was worth.
2: Yeah. What what multiple of revenue? Give me a range, Ganesh. Would you have said the software revenue was worth and the and the uh, And then what what do you think the the services revenue? I mean, just a broad range of whatever multiple...
0: Yeah, so I think think, uh, if you come in as a pure services company, you know, you'd be in the 2x to 3x kind of range, right? Uh, Uh,
2: 2x of revenue or EBITDA?
0: Yes, it's revenue, right? I mean, this is a hot space. So, you know, the metrics is usually not EBITDA, it's just straight up revenue, right? And there were some, you know, hot shop software startups, like, you know, big time startups, uh, who, who were founded in 2017 18 kind of time frame? Who, you know, by that time, AI had kind of had become a standard playbook on how to start a new AI firm. And what we heard was they were raising funds at the 10x kind of valuation, if not more. So well, you're
2: thinking somewhere in that range of, of revenue multiple. And, and so I. Is this a, I mean, I know you've been successful in other businesses and you've gone through other exits, uh, but I'm guessing your shares of OPEX were at that time, a, even if you're using at the, the lower end of that valuation range, right. a fairly significant part of your net worth. Would that be fair to say? Pretty much. Yeah. It's a very easy, fair statement to make. Yeah. yeah. And same for you, Mike. Same thing. And the other thing we did with the equity too, the
1: the equity in OPEX analytics was spread widely throughout our employee base. So it was really spread out very widely across the employee base. I mean, we definitely had advisors as we were going through due diligence who were sort of shocked at how widely it was spread. So we yeah. Were, oh, you know, okay. We tell me
2: more. <laughs> yeah. Tell me more about
1: that. Yeah. No, we, early on, we, we you know, when we we're getting people to join, we, we offered equity in the company. And I think, uh, a lot, you know, a lot of people appreciated the fact that they had, would have a, a stake in, in the outcome, you know, of course we could never promise anyone, anything for this equity, right. Cause you know, probably most, most likely it would have ended up valued zero if you just looked at probability in general. Um, hmm. But, but we were, I think fairly, you know, as part of our principles that we wanted to be able to offer lots of people equity in uh, in the company. So that they all had a stake in this thing.
0: Yeah. So John actually significant equity, right. Uh, and you know, when you're thinking about, Hey, how do you, you know, recruit and retain data scientists, part of the secret sauce was look, you own a significant part of this business. I mean, you know, they knew as a percentage what percentage of the business they owned, right? It's not just you know, throwing some numbers at them and saying, you know, X thousand options. It, they don't mean anything, right? Again, being first principles we're like, you own X percentage of the company as of today, right? So I know a lot of
2: uh, people listening to this will have gone through machinations in their mind about how do i share equity is is it options is it phantom equity is it real equity maybe talk me through how you guys landed on your your program uh and my follow-up question in case you want to answer it as part of that is sort of if you had to do over again how might you structure it differently hindsight being 2020.
1: yeah so so, so i don't think we were so strategic in how we set it up I mean, we set ourselves up as an llc uh, just based on some advice we had from our lawyer. Um, and then we basically had stock options that we issued off of that. And again, we just had our lawyer set up a stock option plan so that people would get options in the company. And I think that served us very well. You know, we had every, you know, year or so we go back to our lawyer and he'd issue a certain X number of new options that we could then distribute to uh, the to new employees as they joined. So it was fairly fairly simple. We didn't think through it too much. Would we have done differently? Would we have set up a C corp? I don't know. Maybe we would have thought about a C corp if we'd uh, known that this was going to happen. But the LLC gave us a lot of uh, tax advantages as we were as we were kind of growing, and gave us some flexibility there that I don't think we would have had with a C corp.
0: Kenesh, yeah, what would you add to that? No, I, I think there are some you know in retrospect, I think there are some tax optimization strategies you can take. Right? I mean, I. I can't, you know, there's something called QSQB. I think something like that, right? Uh, there are there are tax advantages to setting it up as a C Corp, right? That, you know, if you're a founder thinking about setting up option pools, I would say, talk to a startup attorney. And that would be what I would have done if I'm doing it again. Like, you know, talk to a startup attorney who specializes in stock options, right? What we did served us well, I and mean, we're not regretting what we did, but I, I think, there are other tax fa- optimized options, solutions out there, right? Especially yeah. right
2: now. Yeah, and and rather than get into all the minutia and the details of that, because we've got people listening to this from different tax jurisdictions, parts of the world yeah. where it's treated right. differently. So I, I think you're right, Ganesh. I I would recommend anybody, you know, talk to uh, an attorney who or a lawyer who really specializes in this. Also talk to an accountant who specializes in 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 this stuff because it gets way past my pay grade very quickly. And, and it, it also varies by geography. So, but, it, but I think you're right that um, doing it up front often allows you to, to either save a lot of money or, or, or potentially make different decisions if, you're, if you have that luxury. So, right. but, but back to my original question. So yes, you shared some equity with key employees and employees along the way. But I'm but I'm still hearing, and just I want to validate this, that that your shares in OpEx, the ones you personally held, were still a significant part of your personal financial situation. Is that fair to say?
1: Yeah, they were definitely they were definitely a big part of it. I mean, if, you know, the company was going well. And I have you know, I have to say that you know, if we didn't sell or there wasn't an exit, like I wouldn't I wouldn't have been crying or the family wouldn't have been suffering or anything like that. So, you know, we were in a a good position in that sense too. Like you know, we've been professionals, been working, working at, at the good careers. You know, up until we started this company, OPEX was you know shedding, shed, shedding good cash and making good money. So we were, we were doing all right. I don't want to paint the picture like we were just you know starving to death waiting for these options to exercise. I mean, they yeah. were, a, you know, a nice, nice part of our, uh, our total net worth in some sense. But if it hadn't happened, if, there'd be no difference between how Ganesh and I were living today versus then. So. Yeah. 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 And, and I guess part of me is
2: wondering about the follow-up question, which is like, so why sell? If, if the, if the, if the big win is not going to make much of a difference to you yeah. personally, you're already yeah. doing well, why bother selling?
1: Yeah, I think, I think it goes just back to the risk. You know, we, we still 150 people. That's a big, a big nut every month. And if something had turned one month or the other, you know, that could have, that would have hurt. And we would have been in trouble. We could have gotten in trouble quickly in that sense. So there was, there was always that aspect of it that we had to worry about. And the other one was that, uh, you know, when LamaSoft approached us, they are uh, backed by a uh, private equity firm themselves. And so in some sense, you know, it was continual what we were doing in a, again, another startup, a much bigger startup, a much well-funded startup, a startup with a huge infrastructure and a huge client base, but certainly one that, you know, if you know anything about the PE private equity business, like, you know, they're set up to eventually do something like private equity does IPOs, they sell, you know, et cetera. So there was, it kind of felt like a continuation of what we were doing with uh, a bigger backer behind us to take yeah, our ideas okay. to the next level. So, That's know, helpful.
0: I think, I think, you know, uh, uh, sorry, I forgot my point. Never mind. Go ahead. Sell <laughs> 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 so your company did you lose your mind? Ganesh? No, I, think, <laughs> I got my point back. Okay. So we were struggling with this, like, you know, in trying to think about how to think about this because, uh, you know, Mike and I were. We knew that even in the worst case scenario, something bad happens, we would be just fine. Like, you know, it's like, you know, we gotten to the point where financially we would be okay, right? Uh, and, you know, one, one trick we use is, hey, let's think about employee number three, employee number four, employee number five. What about those people? Like, how would, how would it play out for them if, in one scenario versus the other? And that kind of made it easier for us to make the decisions that we made.
2: Got it. Got it. That's helpful. And yeah. so, take us through. You mean you know you've listened to a few of these episodes before. You know, my question is going to be: So, how did you kind of go about shopping the company? I mean, LamaSoft, great, you got an offer. Did yeah. you go and, and hire a banker and sort of tart it up to, to sell and 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 get some competitive offers?
1: We didn't. So we, um, you know, what we ended up doing was LamaSoft approached us, and we weren't, you know, we weren't in the position to. Shop the company around we did not have a banker we were sort of talking to some bankers but we hadn't signed anything and didn't have anything firmly in place and Lomasov came with an offer and I think we went back and forth a couple of times and kind of came up with um, with a price that was agreeable to both sides and then sort of from there we kind of started the process so we weren't we were never in a, we never felt like we were in a position to shop it around competitively or go out and look and we felt like the offer in Everything else that Lamasoft brought, like the culture and their future prospects, felt like, uh, felt like the right uh, package. And we knew that if we'd walked away, that that offer might have gone away and there might not have been a better one down the road and it would have been a lot of effort to get to a better one. So we had, Ganesha had to go back and forth on that uh, trade-off. It was, it was a tough decision. Did we, did we know we were making the right one, right decision? No. You know, this, but this is how this one played out.
2: hmm Often, you know, deal people would say maybe you gave up a little bit of negotiating leverage because you didn't, um, you know, you kind of fell in a in bed with one. Did you ever feel a little vulnerable on that score where you didn't have that competing offer to to hold everybody, uh, to keep everybody honest? Ganesh, I don't know. Do you know what I'm, I'm kind of getting at?
0: Yeah. So I, I think our, our biggest, uh, you know, leverage we had was the fact that we were, we're okay not doing this transaction, right? We, we could live with that outcome where the transaction did not happen, right? Uh, at least for the good, you know, first, you know, 175 days. The last five days, we probably got pretty keen to get it done because so much energy was poured into the process. But I think, you know, without that, I think we would have been in a very difficult situation because as you know, right, the due diligence process is, You know, there's lots of ups and downs and it's a pretty stressful process for everybody, right? Uh, But I would say the biggest leverage we had was the willingness and the ability because of our customers and the love that they had for us and the revenue base that we could just say, okay, if it's not working out, that's fine, Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
2: That makes sense. What was the most difficult part of diligence?
1: (laughs) I think that the most difficult part was just the, the time commitment, you know, as, as the way we were set up, Ganesh and I were very involved in all the day-to-day operations of the company. So trying to keep the company running and then trying to do the due diligence and as, as a much smaller company and we were pretty lean, like we didn't, we didn't have other departments to lean on. So it was all the questions came through Ganesh and I basically. And so that it was just a, the hardest part was just the, the, the time and just all the details about all these different business functions that we didn't have people that we could rely on to answer those questions.
2: And, and because you guys are so integral, I'm assuming that a, a fairly big part of of your deal was an earnout, where you were asked to stay on. Is that fair to say?
1: Oh, absolutely. Hmm. So we're yeah. definitely asked to stay on. Like, uh, it, I mean, we're a people business. So the the buyer, Lamizov, definitely wanted you know the people to stay, and uh, you know lawyers are pretty smart like I'm pretty sure if I read the fine print like I probably signed away my kids somewhere if i leave uh leave this place so you know we it, and we kind of went into this deal like not looking to exit out get out of this business but to to continue it in this sort of this phase two here
2: so did you carry some equity into the new enterprise
1: we did yeah yeah so the you know the without getting into the details but there was there was definitely there's definitely some of that too where we carried some of the equity into the into the next phase here
2: so there's I'm assuming there's some cash up front there's a bit of an equity carry where you you held some equity in the new and and an earnout where if you hit certain milestones the future there's an extra payment of some sort
1: yeah so it actually turned out there was no earnout just it was it was because our businesses were similar enough that it was it was gonna it just felt like it would be difficult to add that in there and so as as we kind of went through the negotiation, it's like uh, we we had talked about that and decided it was just too difficult to put that in. So there was other other ways that uh, they they structured the deal to sort of get the same spirit of those those incentives. Yeah.
0: So John, also going back to your original question, like you know, what are the hard things? You know, one thing for me, I was a little bit surprised by the long tail of due diligence activities. I mean, there's always a core things that happen. Everybody talks about it. Everybody knows about it. Right. Mm-hmm. But there's, there's a long tail of requirements, right. And each, each one of these things is like a five hour, four hour, 10 hour activity. But you know, there are just, you know, five, six, seven dozen of these, of these small, small things that, you know, that kind of took us by surprise. Give
2: me an example of something that surprised you personally, like that was so detailed. So, Into the weeds that you're like really you want you want to know that (laughs) like give an example I'd love for you to share an example because I want people listening to know like what level of obscurity they might have to go to or what level of detail that would be asked like can you think of an example where you you had to devote five hours to getting a piece of data
0: Yeah, I mean it would be something like you know uh, you know there would be obscure uh, questions in a questionnaire, right. Uh, where they'd be like, it's pretty open-ended like saying, Hey, uh, you know, did somebody say something to like, you know, obviously on things like, let's say, you know, potential lawsuits, right. Uh, mm-hmm. what kind of HR activities, uh, you know, happened in the last three years in your company and some, something could be around, you know, harassment, let's say, right. Mm-hmm you don't have any harassment issues in your company, you said, you, you can't say no, but they have ask some questions in such a way that you've got to detail something that happened three years. ago. it has nothing to do with harassment, but the way they phrase the question makes me want to say, hey, this person said something to this person about this event, right? Mm-hmm. And you say that, the questioner goes to the attorney, the attorney has a two hour call with you about it. And there's, <laughs> there's nothing really in it, like, you know, it's right. like, Everybody knows that there's nothing in it, but that opens up another questioner, and you've got to answer those questions in that questioner. And everybody fully knowing that there's nothing here, right? So did
2: that's you what e- yeah. did you eventually have to pull up and, and say, okay, guys, enough is enough. Like oh, sure.
0: you guys, y- yeah. Did you and have you to just, have that? Yeah, t- you got to do that, like you know. And, I mean, not for the whole deal. It's like, say, these topics, we're done here, right? And then you know, that's been. And the one thing we we were very lucky that by that time we had built a very good rapport with uh, the CEO of Lamasoft, where we could go back and say, you know, there's the attorney to attorney conversation, right? There's also, you know, the business people, we were able to have open conversations say, Hey, look, you got to stop your attorney from doing this, right? Or he could come back and tell us, Hey, we need more information here. The deal is a no go if you don't get that information. I will manage my people in these four areas. So we could have that kind of open conversations amongst the business people uh, because the lawyers do their thing and you know, they're very good at doing their thing, but you gotta, you gotta have, it really helped us having that business relationship built out uh, over the you know, six months which we were engaged. Yeah. yeah.
2: I know employees were a big part of this piece for you guys. You were sharing, you had options for a lot of your employees. How did those options pay out when the transaction happened? Were, were they a hundred percent paid in cash or did they have to carry? Like how did, I've always wondered how that works with options when you as founders are asked to carry some equity. How did they
1: get paid out? Like, we got basically all the, Shareholder. So some of our employees had exercised their options. So Ganesh and I were not the only holders of, sh- of shares when it happened. But basically everyone, option holders and shareholders, had basically the same the same thing. Where it was a mix of some cash up front and some equity on the backside. So it was, Got it. It was kind of equitable in that way. It was legally complicated to do that, but uh, it, uh, that's how it uh, ended up working what, out. What made it legally complicated? Um, there was a combination of... Um, Vesting and uh, on the backside options, and then you know, actual option holders versus, or actually stockholders versus option holders. There were some different legal trans- transactions there, and then the vesting part on the backside made it a little, a little more complicated than normal. Mm. So, yeah, so, so, I mean it's yeah. That's an example of like the, some of the the detail that you get into. Like you know, we never knew that this would be that complicated, but it it turned out it was it was not easy to you know make sure that we were. That, uh, that that could all work out in a, in, a, in a right and equitable way for everyone.
2: Ganesh, what's your favorite story of sharing the news with one of your employees?
0: <laughs> I can't remember anyone. Mike, do you remember any stories? It's all a haze. Like, you know, seriously, it's like, you know, it's, it's like, you know, when, when I talked to my wife about, you know, giving birth to our two kids and I was like, hey, how do you remember how painful it was? Like and she's like, I don't remember anything. I'm like I was there in the room. It was painful. It <laughs> feels a little bit like that. It's like I and I feel like I was the pregnant
1: woman in this case. So it was you know, the, the stories I remember are like the the you know the long-term employees have been there a long time, they took some equity, they kind of trusted trusted the company, and it was, you know, just the joy on their face that like, hey, this is this is pretty exciting. Like this piece of paper I had is actually worth a little bit more money than I didn't think mm-hmm. it was worth anything. Like that was pretty good, and you know since we spread the equity wide and since we had uh, employees in you know India, things like that like you know the the amount of money that, that we were able to provide in this in this exit was was nice money for people, lots of people in the organization, and that uh you know that made us feel pretty good very really satisfying
2: for sure I, i'd imagine it would be did you buy yourselves a trophy was there a was there any, any Teslas in there? The Tesla seems to be the, 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 the go-to trophy for people who sell their company. Did you buy a Tesla? No.
1: No, I didn't buy it. I think I bought, maybe took my wife out to a nice dinner and that was about it. Ganesh? Yeah,
0: they dinner and I, I updated my speakers, that's
2: it. Boys, do you wanna stay married? <laughs> Let me give you a tip. When you sell your company, you gotta do better than dinner, all right? This, this, all a, right. Just a little tip. <laughs> Take it for what it is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm just teasing. I, uh, I think this is a great, uh, a great story. I really love the way you describe the strategic fit between yeah. you and Lama South. There's clearly an adjacency, but also a tremendous strategic fit. So I think it's, uh, it's an awesome story. If people wanted to learn or reach out, I know you guys are busy with your day jobs, but is there, I mean, do you accept LinkedIn connections or what's the best way for folks to stay in touch?
0: Absolutely.
1: Yeah, LinkedIn. LinkedIn's probably the best way. You know, it's pretty easy if you go to Lamasoft. I think you can find our profiles and our email addresses there too. So it's relatively easy to, to reach out to us.
2: To track you guys down. Yeah. And we'll put, we'll put the spelling of your uh, first and last names, both of you, in the show notes so, so people can, uh, can search you up on Lomasoft's uh, website. Um, this was a real a joy. I, I wish you guys all the best in this next chapter. And uh, I'm so thrilled that you took the time to do this.
0: Uh, John,
1: Great.
2: thank you
1: very yeah, much. Yeah, thank you, John. We appreciate it. Yeah. Cool. See you. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog.